Welcome back to 10 in 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And my name's Brad. And this week, we are going to talk about Randall McGavick, who was the original owner of Cardington, which is one of the two sites operated by the Battle of Franklin Trust and is one of the sites where Sarah and I both give tours. But he's also a great example of the importance of who you know and of what you know. And why that matters. Randall was born in Rockbridge County, Virginia, on June 20th, 1768. He was the fourth child of ten, and his parents were James and Mary Cloyd McGavick. Randall was part of the first generation of McGavicks born in the American colonies. His father, James, was born in County Antrim, Ireland, on the family homestead, also called Carnton. James came to America around 1755 and was part of a large wave of Irish immigrants at that time. Between about 1710 and 1775, over 200,000 people immigrated to the American colonies from Northern Ireland. This group of people are referred to primarily as the Scots-Irish, and they were mostly Presbyterian. And because the Scots-Irish settled into the Americas later than other European peoples, they were some of the first to push west. This also put them into direct contact with Native Americans. And many of them, like James, Randall's father, served in the later stages of the French and Indian War. After the war, it's believed that he owned an inn in Fort Chiswell, Virginia, which is right on the Kentucky-Tennessee border. Randall grew up in the midst of the revolutionary era of pre-American history. He was born in the 1760s, and when you think of the Revolutionary War, you think 1776. His father was considered to be a revolutionary leader in southwest Virginia. Although Randall himself would have been too young to fight in the Revolutionary War, he did become a member of the Virginia State Militia in 1787. And then in the early 1790s, Randall attended Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Dickinson College was founded by another revolutionary leader, Benjamin Rush, who was also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he was strongly opposed to slavery and was an early proponent of equal education for both men and women. This college, Dickinson, was the first college chartered in the newly created United States. It was situated on the edge of what was then considered to be the frontier. This was far from home for Randall, and it's notable that he was accepted into what was really a fairly small school at the time. And this may have been due to his intellectual promise, but it also could have had something to do with his father's prominent status. This gets into what we said at the beginning. Much of Randall's life can be attributed to what he knew and who he knew. Some of his early connections began while in college or as a result of his college education. This college was very elite and progressive for the time. And according to their website, the college can list among its earliest graduates a U.S. president, a pair of college presidents, two justices of the Supreme Court, a governor, a founding father of the Smithsonian Institution, and at least two abolitionists. While Randall didn't come into contact with all those figures, being around those kinds of people was certainly an influence on who he was. While attending college, he was also a member of a secret society, a closed group of students called the Bell's Lettres Society, which was a literary society created just a few years prior to Randall's attendance. 
the name, the Belles Lettres, is French for the beautiful letters or for beautiful writing. It's still in existence to this day, and it's one of the oldest literary societies in the country. And as far as what it did, according to the original laws of the Belles Lettres Society, the exercise of the society shall be composition, argumentation, and oratory, that composition and language shall be subject to the criticism of the society. So essentially, it was a debate club. And it was originally intended to be a group of 16 students that would gather together every other Saturday and hold debates on various topics, which usually had something to do with morals, ethics, or politics. They were divided into opposing sides. They were required to argue certain topics regardless of their own personal feelings on the issues. And while we don't have all the details about exactly what they argued, we do know a list of the topics, who was on what side, and what the group's verdicts were. So we have a list of these topics, and Sarah, I think we should kind of play a game. I'm going to list the topic, and you're going to guess which side won the debate. Okay, just so the audience knows... I have not seen these topics before, so this is purely my guessing. (laughs) The very first one, right off the bat, they hit kind of a controversial issue. They debated whether slaves should be emancipated or not. I'm going to go with emancipation. They actually did. The very first time they, they said they voted in the affirmative that slaves should be emancipated. Whether a miser or a spendthrift, so somebody who is very conservative with how they spend their money or somebody who spends their money as much as they want, is the most useful member of society. Well, given the time, I'm probably going to have to go with miser. That's also correct. The next one was whether mankind was most led by precept or by example. So whether we're led by what we inherently know or what we witness in other people. I'm going to guess what we inherently know by precept. They said example. Oh. Um, (laughs) I I sounded so disappointed there. You were doing so well. Whether ought a man always speak the truth? No. I'm going to go with they said not speaking the truth always. They, that's correct. They, they said that you're allowed to lie occasionally. The next question is whether our disposition is natural or it's acquired. Well, judging from my wrong answer, I'm going to say with acquired. That's correct. The next question is whether war or peace is most natural to mankind in general. Peace. That's correct as well. That's, well, that's a good thing. Whether a good name and the esteem of our acquaintance is preferable to a large estate. So is being thought of as a good person better than just having a bunch of stuff? I'm going to go with good name. That's also correct. Yes, I'm on a roll. This might be one of my favorite ones. Whether have the clergy or women the greatest influence of the morals of mankind? I'm going to go with women. That's incorrect. They said the clergy. Really? I can't imagine that the clergy would have more influence than women. Whether is the war now carrying on against the Indians just or not? I'm going to guess with it's just. That one was kind of a trick question because the debate grew too heated. And then they motioned that no winner be declared. And Randall was actually arguing in the affirmative that the war was just. That makes sense, though, because I feel like the argument that's going to get the most heated is the one that applies the most to that day. Whether the desire of fame or a consciousness of doing good excite men most for the undertaking of great actions. I'm going to go with the the doing good. 
I had to really think there. They actually said fame. We're, they said we're, we're more, or the winning side said we're more motivated by fame than of just because good things are good to do. So then this next one should be, it kind of goes along with that. Whether should the desire of fame be encouraged in young men? I'm going to go with it should be. Yeah. I mean, if, if they're saying that we do good things because we want to be famous, then it stands to reason that you should encourage right. young people to be famous. Ought a standing army be kept up in a free country in a time of peace? I'm going to go with yes. I would have thought so, but the winning side said no. Well, when you think about it, though, our standing army before the Civil War wasn't all that large. So I guess that would kind of make sense in what people were thinking at the time. Whether does a limited monarchy or a Republican government afford the most sources of happiness? Well, given what we just said about them being, you know, revolutionaries, I'm going to go with... Republican government. Yeah, I think I think the monarchy side would have had the uphill battle in that one. Were the French justifiable in beheading Louis the Sixteenth? Well, again, based on the previous question, yes. Of course they were. Off with his head. Ought women to partake in the government of state or not? Yes. Unfortunately, you think too highly of that. <laughs> Apparently, I had high hopes. I guess I should have known if women aren't influential at all. Right. <laughs> And again, they actually, a second time, debate a similar question to the first. Should Negro slavery be abolished? I'm going to say yes, it should be abolished. And they, for a second time, said that, that, that it should. I think this was a really interesting exercise because it's kind of giving us that perspective of what America was thinking prior to the Civil War. Not just right before the Civil War, but now we're going into the early 1800s, I guess kind of late 1700s, and they're still talking about all of these issues that by the time we get to the Civil War is completely closed off. They're no longer having these discussions. Yeah, particularly the debate about slavery to hear that young men, young college educated men are debating whether we should or should not continue with slavery in the 1790s when, you know, by 1860, it seems like everybody had pretty much made up their minds. Another prominent member of the society was a young man, a very young man, 15 years old in 1792, named Roger B. Taney. He was one of the youngest students, and Randall was one of the oldest. He was a lawyer in his adulthood. He was closely associated with Andrew Jackson, as was Randall. He was the U.S. Secretary of War. He becomes the Attorney General, the Secretary of the Treasury. He was most notably the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court from 1836 to 1864. And one of the things that Roger B. Taney is most noted for is for authoring the majority opinion in the Supreme Court case Dred Scott versus Sanford. This is potentially the most infamous Supreme Court case. It was where a slave, Dred Scott, sued his former owner because his former owner brought him into a free state. And so according to the lawsuit, Dred Scott's saying, since I'm in a free state, I can sue for my freedom. But according to the majority opinion, which was authored by Taney, Black Africans imported as slaves had, for more than a century before, been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. Wow, that's a little bit different from then arguing that slavery ought to be abolished. Yeah, I mean, you see how, how quickly things change from arguing if it should exist or not to saying 
that the Negro has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. This decision was in many ways a catalyst that pushed the country towards civil war just a few years later. This is a man that Randall McGavick knew well in college. Being part of this group of young academics would have been, I'm sure, a life-changing experience for Randall. And even though we don't know what was said in each argument, just being able to participate and witness some of the brightest young minds of the day debate some of the most pressing issues of the time would have been remarkable. In 1794, Randall graduates from Dickinson College as part of a small class of 20 people. Two years after Randall graduates from college, in 1796, Tennessee becomes the 16th state. Only two other states, Vermont and Kentucky, had joined the Union after the original 13 colonies and was formed out of the western portion of North Carolina. And those who were moving into Tennessee at this point in time didn't consider themselves moving south as much as moving west. There's a great article from a Tennessee newspaper called The Pulaski Citizen that was published in 1884. And I think it really exemplifies why these people were moving west, what their thoughts were as they were forging this new path. The first settlers were mostly from Old Virginia and North Carolina, and were generally first-class citizens, settling and opening up a rich, dense forest country filled with noble rivers, beautiful creeks, and bold springs. This is south of the great mountain ranges, then of their old homes of public and domestic happiness. For then, their fathers had fully established American independence and ratified our golden chart of civil and religious rights and privileges. And as the morning sun of American independence had risen up above the political horizon and dissipated the poisonous crampings of monarchical principles and had fully warmed up the blood of independence, it was then our fathers turned about extending, widening, and strengthening the bounds and bonds of our national independence and happiness. We talked about this mindset all the way back in the very first episode about Thomas Hart Benton when we said that in the year 1800, there wasn't a county west of Williamson County, Tennessee, which is where we currently are in Franklin. Starting in the 1780s, Randall's brother David, his older brother David, had been traveling into what would become the Tennessee area and acting as a land surveyor. And a land surveyor is an extremely important role. Their job is to map new areas. This could also prove incredibly lucrative because it gave the land surveyor knowledge of what the most promising and valuable pieces of land were going to be. If you were a land surveyor who had money, like David McGavick would have, you could pick and choose what you wanted to purchase. And if you were the first guy there, it kind of gave you first dibs at it. David bought some of the highest quality farmland in the Middle Tennessee areas that he surveyed. And later in life, David was elected the registrar of the land office in 1806 and held that position until his death in 1838. So now we're getting kind of into the who you know also applies to Randall's own family. After graduating college, Randall moved to Nashville with his brother David. He most likely moved to Nashville with the intention of practicing law. That is what he studied in school. But he began almost immediately surveying with his brother. And it seems like he quickly pivoted his career path by switching from being a lawyer 
to being a court clerk. In 1798, he was appointed clerk of the federal court. A court clerk does things like maintain court records, administer oaths to witnesses and jurors, and authenticate copies of the court's orders and judgments with the court seal. He was then the circuit court clerk of Davidson County in 1810, and he even became the clerk of the Tennessee Supreme Court of Errors and Appeals, which in 1834 was absorbed by the Tennessee Supreme Court. As far as the significance of being a court clerk, it's interesting because today being a court clerk is not that lucrative or prestigious of a job. But at the time, it was one of the few roles in government that was available. And while you didn't have that much influence just by doing it, it made you somebody who knew what was going on, what laws were being passed, who was doing what. It may have not been as flashy of a job as being a politician, but in an age when many things came down to who you know and what you know, this job was the ideal opportunity. It was behind the scenes, but it was very significant. Information is power, and he basically has control of some of the most important information in Nashville at this point in time. After a lengthy career as a court clerk, Randall served as the mayor of Nashville in 1824 to 1825, although there are really no records of what exactly made him decide to run for mayor when he did, and he only served one term, but this was in many ways the peak of his political career. Another extremely important figure that gained prominence around this same time was Andrew Jackson. Randall would have known him very well. In 1796, both Randall McGavick and Andrew Jackson were enrolled as attorneys at law in the state of Tennessee. Jackson was a justice for the Tennessee Supreme Court starting in 1798, which is the same time Randall began his career in the court system. Randall's nephew Jacob was an aide to Jackson in the War of 1812 and was even one of Jackson's pallbearers. Randall and Andrew Jackson exchanged letters. In one letter, Andrew asked Randall to act as essentially a character witness on his behalf. This was after one of Jackson's many duels. Well, maybe his most controversial duel. Probably his most controversial duel with Charles Dickinson, which resulted in the death of Dickinson and a bullet lodged in Jackson's chest for the rest of his life. And Randall essentially vouches for Jackson in this letter. We also have in the Carnton collection a rocking chair, which belonged to the McGavick family, but it is believed to have been given to them as a gift from President Jackson. Now that we've walked through most of Randall's career as a clerk and briefly as a politician, we're going to switch to talk about his personal life. And his personal life starts fairly later on in life. It's not till he's 42 years old that he marries his wife in 1811. Her name was Sarah Rogers. And Sarah Rogers had significant family connections as well. Her father, John Rogers, was also a Revolutionary War soldier. Her second cousin was Senator John C. Calhoun. And her brother-in-law was Felix Grundy. Felix Grundy was a lawyer, a state representative from both Kentucky and Tennessee, and a member of the U.S. House and Senate from Tennessee. He also served as the United States Attorney General, and lastly, as a mentor to James K. Polk. Multiple cities and counties are named after him, most notable Grundy counties in both Tennessee and Iowa. And we learned this while we were doing a little bit of research for this podcast. In Iowa, the county seat of Grundy County boasts of a Felix Grundy festival the weekend after 4th of July every single year. I think we need to try to go to that next year. I know. I think we should. Work trip! (laughs) Sarah and Randall have seven children. 
Only five of them live into adulthood and his children also help him make even more connections. He had a son named James who reside in a home in Franklin called Riverside. The son John, who inherits Carnton later on, marries a woman by the name of Carrie Winder, who has pretty big political and wealth connections herself. John becomes an advisee to James K. Polk while he's governor here of Tennessee. His daughter Mary marries a very, very wealthy banker named Joseph Southall. And his daughter Elizabeth marries William Harding. And Harding was a wealthy horse breeder and the owner of the Bell Meat Plantation. And Harding became a brigadier general in the Confederate Army. Now that we've talked about Randall's career and his family life, we want to move on to something that he did towards the end of his life, which was to move from Nashville to Franklin and build Carnton. But he actually owned the land that Carnton is built on for quite some time. It was a land grant that his father owned. After the Revolutionary War, the federal government awarded land grants to citizens and soldiers, and it was usually as payment for military service. And oftentimes this land was in the western frontier in areas like North Carolina and Tennessee and Kentucky. Randall's father, James, had secured a land grant for property in Franklin, which Randall inherited while he was living in Nashville. And this was during his time as a court clerk. In 1815, he had a small brick house constructed on the property with a smokehouse attached a little bit later. This house was most likely used by Randall's in-laws, the Rogers family. And within a few years, another two-story brick structure was added to the property, which is believed to have been used as a slave house. By the 1820s, Randall had accumulated a fairly vast amount of wealth from a combination of his career, his family connections, and his land holdings. And a large portion of his wealth was in enslaved individuals. In his early years in Tennessee, we really don't know much about the number of enslaved people he owned or what skill sets they had. We do know, though, at the time of his death, he owned 22 people. In 1826, after his term as mayor, he had another larger home built on the property connected to the other two. This new home was a large three-story brick building built in federal architecture style. And it's believed that the house was built using the labor of the enslaved individuals that Randall owned. And I think that the house, in many ways, is a testament to these slaves' craftsmanship. It seems like the family always informally referred to their home in Franklin as Carnton, which was a reference to Randall's father's home in Ireland. But over the years, the estate became to be known more and more commonly as Carnton. In a newspaper from 1860, Randall's son John is noted as having won an award in the county fair for best farming estate. And the article refers to the home, and they kind of get the spelling wrong, as Carnden with a D. The word Carnton derives from the Gaelic word cairn, C-A-I-R-N. And a cairn is a pile of stones set to commemorate an important event or a location so that whoever happened across that pile of stones would know and remember that something of historic note took place there. During the Battle of Franklin on November 30th, 1864, his home Carnton was used as a Confederate field hospital. And then after the war, a Confederate cemetery was created on the family property, which made the meaning of the name Carnton even more significant. Randall suffered from a prolonged sickness towards the end of his life. There are many references in family letters to his chronic pain. It is believed that he may have had stomach cancer. And on September 27th, 1843, 
Randall passes away at Carnton. And his will is kind of that last testament to how much influence he had in Nashville. He leaves most of his household goods and furniture to his wife, but to all of his children, he leaves land. Many of them both in Franklin and in Nashville. I think it's really cool is that his wife keeps a pair of his gold spectacles. And then when she dies, she actually passes them on to his son, John. And we do have some of his obituaries and letters written about him after his death from his family. So now we're gonna take a moment to go out to his grave, which is located at Carnton in the McGavick Family Cemetery. But before we do that, we want to, again, thank you folks for listening. If you would like to support this podcast and maybe add some books to your collection, if you go to our online store, which is store.boft.org, and use the coupon code PODCAST18, PODCAST is all one word, 18, you can receive 10% off your order. Once again, that's store.boft.org and the coupon code is podcast18. That's good from now through the end of August. As always, we encourage you to support your local history. If you want to come hear more about Randall and about the family and about the Battle of Franklin, we highly encourage you to come visit Carnton. You may even get Sarah or myself as your tour guide. If you would like to contact us with either a question or with a suggestion of a topic that we should cover, we highly encourage you to send us an email. My email address is brad at boft.org. And my address is sarah with an H at boft.org. Thank you so much for listening. And now we're going to head out to Randall's grave. So we're now in the McGavick Family Cemetery. Right in front of Randall McGavick's headstone, which he shares with his wife, Sarah. And immediately next to us is John McGavick, his son's headstone, which he shares with his wife, Carrie and Randall's three grandchildren that died as children, Martha, John Randall, and Mary Elizabeth. And when Randall passes away in 1843, it seems that his family's very grieved at his loss, and they say some very kind words. In a letter that Randall's nephew Andrew writes, he says, "'Few men ever live to better purpose than our worthy deceased uncle. In him, it may be said, society has lost a benefactor. I think his daughter Mary exemplifies what Andrew just said. She writes, just a couple of days after his death, Though my dear departed father never professed religion, yet if ever there was a human being that practiced Christianity, it was him that was taken from us. Not that man living, nor ever did live, that could say he had ever wronged him, or that person in affliction that could say he had been turned away from his door empty-handed. Thank God he was followed by the blessings and tears of those who had known him and loved him, of the poor and needy that had been relieved by his kindness, by the never-dying love and devotion of his bereaved wife and children. But we must try to submit and say with truth, as he said the night previous to his death, the Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though it is hard to bear, yet his will be done. You know, Sarah, when we first started doing this podcast, mm-hmm. 
we had said that we were going to do 10 episodes. That's true. About Tennessee history and then kind of see from there what we wanted to do. This is episode number 10. Wow, I did not even realize that. And personally, I feel like doing these has given me more of a sense of appreciation for the stories that we tell, but also our American and Tennessee stories in general. So my question for you is, are we going to stop? I mean, I think, I don't think so. Uh, For me too, it kind of gives that appreciation, but I also think it reminds me why history is so important. That we keep on telling these stories so that not only we know about them, but you know, everyone else does too. Yeah. I don't want to stop either.